Hey everybody, it's Andy Little here from the EM Over Easy podcast. What you're about to hear is audio from a live session that Tanner and I had with Chris Colbert and Rachel Munn at the ACOP Spring Seminar this previous April in Scottsdale, Arizona. Take a listen and we hope you enjoy it. A lot of you may know what we do on our podcast a lot, which is basically talk about the hard things about being an ER doc or working in an emergency department, not so much the clinical aspects of things. And I think that's probably one of the hard parts about our job is when we have to interact with people that aren't necessarily supposed to be there. Yeah. Or maybe they are supposed to be there, but they're not really helping, or sometimes they are helping. I don't know. It's kind of hard. Today's topic that we want to talk about was that kind of non-essential person that's there with the patient or around the patient or in the emergency department for some reason. And how do you handle those scenarios? The extras, as I like to call them. The extras, yes. Because I don't put the extra, like they're modifiers to the extra, but there are extras in the room or extras there. So when I say non-essential personnel or extras, what do you think of? Like what are the types of people you're thinking of? The first thing that comes to mind is, you know, the family member, which I think we, I actually appreciate when family members come. It can give you an extra little bit of history. Usually wives narc on their husbands. You know, the husband will be like, oh, I've had this pain for 45 minutes. And they're like, you've been complaining about this for a week and a half, you dummy. Or they'll also like explain a little bit more of the review of systems if it's a spouse. Usually kids, if they're older patients. I actually like it when kids come. They give us some, some perspective in terms of ability to take care of themselves at home. But then sometimes you get like f- random friends show up, which I never get. And then now that I practice in Florida, I've had too many occurrences where they bring their personal injury attorney with them, Ooh. which we'll get into later. But it, it adds a nice little flavor when they bring in the person that's on the billboard you drive into work every day, when they're in the room with the patient, <laughs> the actual to the actual emergency department, which we'll get into later. So yeah, like that, it's friends, it's family, friends, and then personal injury attorneys. Like that's what that's my experience Florida. working in Florida. So yeah. How do you just introduce that and say, we'll talk to that later? That's the mic drop one. I, I've never had that before. I've got, wow, that's impressive. I haven't either. So there's two types of people that come. And first of all, I adore and I love when it's the wife. Because the husband will look you in the face and have this scar in the middle of his chest and say, I've never seen a doctor. I've never had any surgeries. And that's when she goes, Stanley, we just had open heart two days ago at Northwestern. Oh, I did have open heart. I sure did. I sure <laughs> did have open heart surgery. And so you have to, you have to see how this person really fits in. Yeah. Because it, it, it varies. Sometimes it's just a wealth of knowledge, and then other times it's just an exercise in futility. Yeah. Or, you know what, I'm a biology major at blah, blah, blah university, so I think my mother needs an MRI. And I think you need to finish your freshman year in college, and maybe we can have a discussion. Yeah, the pre-med family members are literally my least favorite family members. I'd rather have like a seventh cousin that's in town for the first time than a pre-med family member, 100%. And as a pre-med family member, I was also bad. We were all bad, but like, oh, they're the worst. Mon, who do you think about? I think there are two categories, you know, those that are helpful. So the family member or caregiver for someone with dementia or other cognitive impairment or a kid that can't Mm -hmm. talk to you, and they give you context and they give you additional information. And then those that are unhelpful, the unhelpful kinds who either speak over the patient, don't let you actually talk to them, or they bring their friend fentanyl to do in the bathroom. So, Because <laughs> none of us have ever, people are laughing because we've all had that patient, right? It's so relatable. Yeah, yeah. It's very the relatable. Don't appreciate They're like, when much. are you getting the IV in the patient? It's like, you were really worried about this IV. Like, there is nefarious <laughs> thoughts going on in your brain right now about me getting an IV for this patient, so yeah. 
I think the category of people who are trying to help but actually getting in the way are the hardest to deal with. Yeah. Fentanyl in the bathroom, easy. Security, gone. Yeah. The family member who just won't let you interview Nana, those are the ones where it's like, I know you're really trying to help and I appreciate your insight, but I want to see if she can give me some answers like on her own. So dealing with that's challenging. Sounds like Tanner had one of those in the counter. I actually, yeah, within the last few weeks, I had a family member who, it's probably the first time in a while I've gone home to my wife and said, I just got berated today by a family member. And there was a procedure going on and I was trying to help out the patient, but the family member didn't think I was doing a good enough job or didn't, hadn't delivered the care that they had expected early on in the case. And so I think that had kind of set us off on the wrong foot. And so when I was actively trying to do something to help the patient, they were in the bleachers just commenting on every single thing I said. Every single, like, if I like, picked up something, it was like, oh, now you pick that up. And if I said something, it's like, oh, that would have been nice to know 20 minutes ago. And it didn't matter what I did. And eventually I had to stop. And I looked at her and I was like, what can I do to help you? Because I'm here to help right now. I'm helping your mom. How can I help you? And the reply was, nothing, I'm never coming back here ever again. If I'm dying, I'd rather go somewhere else and die. And then she walked out of the room. And I think that that was one of those kind of key moments where specifically addressed her and addressed her concern. concern, which is how can I help you? And she didn't have an answer. And so then she left. If, um, if I may, but I think that is the first step. You have to acknowledge this individual to even initiate and to identify what the pathway is gonna yeah. be. I don't know where you're going with this, but hi, my name is Dr. Colbert, random stranger, freshman, aunt, uncle, cousin, postman, something relationship. Where are you in this picture so that I can have a conversation so that your commentary goes down a little bit? I think that's excellent. That's what I do. You have to acknowledge. You can't ignore, or you can ignore for a while until they're just starting to yell, boo, ref, what are you calling from the bleachers? And that's actually a really good point. Like when I walk into a room and I have someone besides the patient there with them, I always ask who it is and who's here with you. And I have the patient try to answer that question for me so that I can get their perspective on this person. And this was an exact scenario where if that person came in after I'd already done that initial like eval. And so they came in like halfway through the workup. And so their view on what I had done was completely different. Yeah. We just didn't have time to like reset those boundaries of like who we, everyone was and what we were trying to do that day. And so, but yeah, I think definitely having that communication of who is what and what are, why are you here really helps. We almost have to think of our patients, your family, friend, caregiver, whomever, as a second patient. Yeah. And especially in the situation where there's been a critical illness or something where maybe they can't communicate with their family member, we're their lifeline to that person that they love. Yeah. So kind of remembering that like they are your second patient or the second victim essentially in whatever is happening and structuring your communication appropriately is helpful. Sometimes people are just unreasonable. <laughs> there's not much you can yeah. do. But. So I guess the question is, how do you start an encounter when there's new people? So Chris, when you walk into a room and you see a patient in the bed and there's extras, Walk me through how do you start the room? Because what you don't want to do is start making assumptions, right? Who here has ever assumed that somebody's a daughter when it's a spouse? Or vice versa, it's a son when it's a husband, right? So this goes both ways, right? So I've done that. Or better yet, how many people have assumed that the person in the bed is the patient? <laughs> and the person in the bed is not the patient. Yeah. No. Go, hey, how are you doing? I'm Dr. Colbert. 
Mark? <laughs> and Mark is sitting down because his friend is either intoxicated or his wife is pregnant, so that's why she's in the yeah, bed. Yeah, yeah. I'm like, wait a minute, this doesn't say anything about pregnancy, Mark. <laughs> so what I usually do is I just int introduce myself, literally. I introduce myself to the patient and, and then I'll ask the patient because that way the patient identifies this is my room. Yeah. So, hey, how are you doing? I'm Dr. Corbett. Do you mind if I take a seat? Sure, go ahead, take a seat. Boom, I sit down. And then I'll say, please, introduce me to everyone else in the room. So I'm setting the scenario that this is my room. And also, it's my hope that that level of respect and dignity to the patient kind of calms down the person in the room who's a biology major or who's a nurse or who's a retired blah, blah, blah. Yeah. So that they can state, well, this guy is really giving my family member the dignity to make decisions so we can have shared decision making. Yeah. And then we go from there. That's such a unique perspective. I've never thought of it that way, how it's the patient's room as opposed to our room. Because we look at the department, it's our department. We're the captains of the ship here. And they ain't paying rent. Sorry. <laughs> I think I've heard residents say that, so that's why but, I said But that. I love like trying to create that perspective for the patient so that they can feel comfort yeah. and trust when we are only gonna be there for a short period of time and help create that bond that's gonna allow us to give them the best care possible. And hopefully be there for the short, I've got a goal. I want to be here for a short amount of time. <laughs> if you don't establish that, whoever's in the room will make that as long. They don't care about the other patients that you have to see or you just walk out of someone else's room. They're like, I'm not happy and we're gonna talk about this for the next 15 minutes. And you're just like, I don't wanna be here for five. How do we cut this down? One of the shops I work at now, we have these little phones that, that call centers can call us on and whatnot, but it has a button that if you hit it, the ringer goes off. So anytime you get stuck, you can just kind of go, oh, I got it. <laughs> Neurosurgery's calling me. I have to take this call real quick. And are you lie to patients? No, only when it benefits them. Only when it benefits them, that's true. So Chris, I love your move because, I, again, having done the foot in your mouth too many times with misintroducing myself to the wrong person, I learned similar to where it's, Sometimes it's great you have the patient tell them because you're also assessing things about the patient. The patient knows what day of the week it is, then who's with them in the room. I go a little bit farther and I actually individually shake everybody's hand. It works really good with kids because they're like, why are you shaking my hand? And you give them a little fist bump. Um, but then at the end of the visit, so I meet with the patient, I go a little bit further and I say, what are your expectations for today? Knowing that the patient's expectations are usually, I'm vomiting and want to stop, or I feel like I'm dying and I want that to go away. But then you can assess what everybody else in the room expects, mostly so you can reset those expectations really, really quick. How do you like to set expectations? And also see if anyone else in the room has questions. Mm -hmm. So I don't shake anyone's hand, actually. I don't know if that died with me in COVID or when that happened. I went to fist bumps for a while, but now people yeah. are back to handshakes. So I'm just like, I'm going to wash my hand 20 times. I prefer not to touch people. Yeah, I do, but I have to sometimes. <laughs> but after talking to the patient or whomever, I usually address them and I say, do you have questions? Is there anything I can get you? And then normally I have to go on a blanket or water run, which is fine. And I look at the patients, whomever. And I say, do you have any questions or do you need anything? So you've kind of addressed all parties, given them the opportunity to speak and to you know, address any of their concerns. And you get them a blanket and water too. Everybody's happy. Very quickly, also doing this, it gives you introducing yourself to the patient and having the patient introduce everyone in the room was also key for me with domestic violence. Because very often we'll have the perpetrator sit in the room 
with the actual patient. Mm -hmm. And sometimes just with the delivery of the introduction, you can kind of see or tell this person that's with you was not wanted. And that can provide a little bit of insight as well. Yeah, no, it's true. Not that's just right. intimate partner violence, but trafficking as well. So yeah. kind of sketchy relationships or relationships where you wouldn't anticipate that like this person is actually your uncle who's brought yes. you into the ED, but is introduced as such can in Hey, wait a minute. I, I'm an uncle. I take offense. I'm joking. But, there, but it is true that it's usually yeah. like they say, oh, this is my uncle. And it's like, you don't share eyebrows. You don't share chins. You don't share, like I just like do a quick genetic test and I'm like, that boy is not your uncle. <laughs> so that's no, a great point. Yeah, it's really good to see the interactions between the people in the room and how their personal connections kind of work because that's also going to give you a heads up on what their expectations are. Like sometimes you're there just trying to please the family member. Yeah. Like the patient literally has zero desire to be there. Like you ask them, what are you here for? And like, I don't care, nothing. And you're like, why, why are you here? And then you realize it's because the family member was really concerned about this. Yeah. And you can see the interaction between those two when they're talking to each other, introducing each other, and, and you go, oh, okay. I see, who, I see who I'm actually talking to right now. Yeah. So I have a question. What do you do, what, or what does anyone do when we get the virtual, oh, you know what, my uncle's gonna call in, or you walk in the room and their mother or their father, and they're like 37, is FaceTiming, so they wanna speak. Everyone here has had that. What do you do? How do you politely say, I don't wanna speak to whoever's in Florida? So I used to take that, like, can I have your time? And, I would, and if they said no, I'd say, well, I'll come back. And I explain, like, finish your brief phone call, I'll come back. But now, I think with COVID, because we went from not having family members at the bedside mm -hmm. to where most of my interaction with family was on FaceTime or on the phone, now I'd say, is this somebody you want to be a part of your care today? And if they say yes, I let them stay. Okay. And if they say no, I say, well, why don't you finish up your call and I'll come back. But I give them the option because COVID taught me that there are people who have valid opinions and valid concerns and are actually part of the decision-making team that might not be physically present and allowing them to be on the phone or be on FaceTime makes the patient feel more comfortable with their care. Yeah, I think a lot of post-COVID family care is provided from a distance now. And you have children who have been made medical power of attorney and they live halfway across the country. Yeah. And so when grandma or mom or dad goes to the ER, they want to be involved and I think it's, it's always awkward getting on the phone because nowadays we all just text and we don't want to actually talk to people, it seems like. But it is valuable to do, so it's, I think you have to just kind of gauge like, okay, why am I talking to you? Are you just curious and you want to update or are you actually involved in like medical decision making for this person? Or if the patient is very resistant to be admitted even though their oxygen is 75% on room air and they're like, no way in hell I'm being admitted, you can use them as like leverage too. So you have to kind of gauge that out. And I, it, sometimes it's hard to talk to people on the phone, but I think it's really valuable to at least explore what that person's value brings to your medical care to make sure you do the right thing for the patient. Just the other day I asked a patient if I could call his fiance who I knew was in the ED earlier and I talked to her. And he came in, for, was a, came in for chest pain, initial EKG and trope were okay, second were less okay. I was like, sir, we need to admit you. And he was like, uh-uh, I ain't got time for this. And I was like, who the, you know, your fiance who was here earlier, can, can we talk to her? Can, can we get her, her back here so she can convince you to stay? Yeah. So sometimes I've sought mm -hmm. that out. Yeah, because sometimes that person that can convince them is not physically present. Yeah, and they came, be they had to present. take the kids home, you know. 100%. I, I don't want to minimize this, please. Tell me about this attorney thing. Oh, yeah. <laughs> got to hear this. So when we talk about the categories, like family members and friends are very different, but I, I've had three interactions in the last month 
where their personal injury attorney or their attorney for their medical care Three. has shown come up to the ED. Mm -hmm. Two were car accidents where they were cleared by EMS, but then they called their attorney, the attorney picked them up and brought them to the hospital. Has um, anyone else experienced this? Anybody else had a lawyer show up? We got, yeah. Okay. They work, do you guys work in the Southeast? Yeah, Florida, yeah. <laughs> Well, we, we don't, Anna Jar and Levine, well, there's a couple other people, but yeah. So I've had personal injury attorneys, and the one that probably stuck out the most was one who came, sometimes they're very reasonable, right? So What do you mean they're reasonable? Why are they there? What is their... Well, so they're there to advocate for the patient. So when I've always just said, like, so who are you and what's your role? Because I sometimes I'll expand it further to be like, Can I, who are you and what's your role here? And so they're like, well, I'm so-and-so attorney at law, and I'm their personal injury attorney to make sure they get appropriate care today after their car accident. And so it just like drops the gauntlet. And then I know I'm gonna to have to be in evidence-based medicine mode the rest of the time I'm in the room. Because there are some patients you can say, hey, we're gonna take care of you, get some pictures, you can go home. And so I spent 30 minutes talking about Canadian head CT rules and nexus <laughs> criteria. And we talked about traffic accident like coding and stuff like that. So really, really good. But I was able to walk them off the ledge. Does it, does it kind of give you actually even more reassurance that you're okay when you go at the end? It's like, Okay, have I answered all your questions? Do you feel okay going home? And you look at both of them and the lawyer says, yep, it's okay. No. Okay. You feel like, okay, I got the lawyer's approval and then they, if something happened, so you're the, like, no, you said it was okay. You let your patient leave. So the, so the car accidents were wins because I was able to work through with the attorney in the room and the patient that neither one of them required advanced imaging and we could do close observation with appropriate like pain medicine. But the third one that came in was somebody that I was their ninth visit in two weeks. And of course, they had been to four different healthcare systems, none of which EMRs talked to each other. And I was the recipient of visit nine, first time in my health system. And so that was a little tricky because I said, who are you and what's your role? And it's, <laughs> I'm attorney so-and-so, and I'm here to make sure that you don't send her home to die. And I was like, okay, so somebody's life. getting admitted to the hospital. And so I, <laughs> I'll get to the hospitalist, hey, I gotta admit this one because there are lawyers here. No, no, so, no, so, so I talk with the patient, I figure out every study that they had gotten in the last two weeks, we agree to get the one image that they had not received for their complaint. And, and I said, okay, so we're gonna get this picture. I think if we get labs and the, the image is okay, would you feel comfortable going home? And the patient's like, oh, sure. And the attorney goes, just sitting there with their head going like this, and I'm like, okay, good to know. So we get the CAT scan, it's normal, the labs are normal, and I call medicine, and I have one hospital that I've become really close friends with because of COVID, and I call and I'm like, hey, what's up? So remember that crappy patient I'm allowed to admit to you once a month? I got a cash in for next month's patient because <laughs> I already admitted this month's crappy patient. And he's like, oh, tell me about it. And I told him the whole thing, he goes, okay, so GI consult, general surgery consult, cards if everything's negative. Okay, sounds good. And then hung up the phone. But at the same time, like I felt kind of bad because here was this lady being admitted probably for poorly managed peptic ulcer disease who was gonna walk out of the hospital with a bill. It was probably all gonna be negative. And when I looked at her chart two weeks later, she saw general surgery, GI, and cardiology. Everything was negative. She, she was sent home with follow-up and reassurance. But that's a patient that I wasn't gonna be the one, one to miss something, right? Because we, we admit that doctors miss things. We are people, we'll, miss, we'll mislabel a, a symptom or review a, something that review a system that pops up. So it's important to still do thorough workups, but that was one where it really wasn't the right time of my shift where I was gonna go toe to toe with this attorney. It was easier for me just to bounce it to the medicine team, so. There was a hand from Florida, oh, yeah. someone from Florida said it happened to them over here. I'm just curious if you want to share your experience. So I work in West Palm and I've had this happen several times where I walk into the room and there's somebody sitting there, they're not even in a suit and you think they're a family member mm -hmm. and then they just 
pipe up as you start saying what you're going to do, how the visit's going to go, and they say, oh, and we'd like this, this, and this. And mm -hmm. I said, who are you again? Then they say they're the attorney. Yeah. And uh, it's usually a personal attorney, too. So immediately you start sweating. <laughs> and you're going, oh, well, let me, let me rethink all what I just said, you know? <laughs> but it's happened quite a few times. Yeah, and it's interesting you bring up that all three of mine were dressed in, like, golf attire, maybe? So maybe, like, Isn't polo shirt and pair of shorts. Sort of dresses? That's, that's, so again, they mix in. Like the, Just for the record, none of us here have any white scopes or stethoscopes yeah. on. And no one here, I'm sure you all are doctors, most of them, but I get it, I get yeah. it. So they dress like regular people, and if I hadn't self-identified and said, who are you and what's your role, they probably wouldn't have told me. Because I imagine they were there just to take notes. It seems kind of underhanded a little yeah. bit. Yeah. I think it's funny that we automatically assume lawyers are just always wearing suits, too. Yeah. Every TV show has a lawyer wearing a suit, and the, the most prominent one's called suits. So They, they shower in suits. Like, they yeah, just branding. always are Shay. branding, branding. We have another person. We had a question. Do you document that interaction with the attorney, and how and what do you write? Well, and I think the next thing is that when we didn't talk about talking about this, but I think that when there are people in the room that are extra, I chart on everybody that I talked to and was okay with the care. So it would be my MDM. Patient was a 57-year-old female who presented with abdominal pain, went through the following workup, discussed with her and her attorney who was present, and I list the name of the attorney, and they felt that it was reasonable for an admission to the hospital. Medicine was consulted, and they were admitted. Or if it was they and their attorney who was present were okay with the conservative workup that included no advanced imaging, close follow-up, for pain. I include them 100% every time. Say, that, that's exactly what I do too, as well is I don't necessarily list names, but I will say if it's mother, father, son, whoever was there that I talked to and interacted with, I think it's really important both you know, from a medical standpoint so that other people will know, oh, they actually talked to the daughter who's the POA. Or from a legal standpoint, now they can, you can say, no, I, there was multiple people in the room that we talked about things, here's the plan, here's whatever, and it kind of gives you a little bit of backup when you, know, you can't just say he said, she said type of scenario. And I only put the attorney's name in because I remember I was opposite another doctor and I had never had this before. And I said, what do I do? And they said, well, make sure you have their credentials and put it in the chart. I was like, okay. So that went in my chart every time I do it now. There's another question. So I had a question about something earlier you had mentioned about patient recordings. So uh, this is when I was in California about five years ago. I had a patient record our H&P and discussion. Now California is a two-party state, meaning that you have to say, yes, I consent. Now I didn't know this. So the patient then went to administration and said, I'm gonna play the recording. And fortunately they said, well, did Dr. Lee consent? They said, no. And they said, well, we can't hear it then because I'll get a lawyer and sue and say, hey, he never consented to this. So my question is, depending on the state you practice, have you had patients record and then either take it to administration or whatnot? That's my, I guess, concern as physicians. I think if you would not have to look very far on Google to look at physician recorded and loses their job. One that sticks out, there was a physician in Santa Barbara in 2017 or 2018 where the family recorded her and didn't take it to the hospital administration, but sent it to the newspaper, right? And because of, you can watch that in, in encounter, I don't wanna take sides, but the physician was a little gruff with the patient, probably a little more aggressive than I would have been in the situation, but patients are recording you. Like I can tell, everybody in this room has been recorded. Mm -hmm. Have been. Every patient has a smartphone, everybody is on Facebook Live or Google Live, so you've either had somebody in the room you didn't know was with you, because it's in their pocket, or they physically recorded you. But it is important to know your state. There are states that are two-party states, and if you're in one of those states, 
from a legal standpoint, you're fine because if you don't consent to the video, but then there's certain things you should probably have in your back pocket, like some phrases. So my big thing is whenever we do procedures, a family member will whip out a phone and I remind them that one, it's against hospital policy, which it's against most hospital policies for any part of the visit to be recorded. But then it's also, I remind them that we also live in Florida where I don't consent to this video. So I need you to turn that off before I proceed. When I've never had a problem with that, but it's worth knowing the actual laws in your state and then knowing your hospital policy. Because there is also some case reports and we had a, we, there was one within a company that I worked for before where my current job, where a physician went after and stole the patient's phone and then shockingly was fired, went before the state medical board. Like, so know your rights, but also know that they might still be able to keep the video. There's nothing you can do about it, so. Yeah. I think it's definitely just important to know what your state is. Yeah. One way, two way, and then beyond that, a lot of just common courtesy and being nice goes a long way. If yeah. you don't want to be recorded, you run into the, hey, hospital policy says you can't record in here. And if you're nice about it, I think 99% of the time it's gonna go fine. If you're in a scenario where somebody's angry or upset, I think the best way is to politely remove yourself from the scenario till things simmer and you can kind of reboot and get extra help, whether it's talking with charge nurse, talking with hospital administration, whatever that is that to help kind of figure out, okay, how are we gonna address this? Somebody's angry or somebody's recording that I don't want to have happen. Obviously, emergent situation, you gotta do what you gotta do, right? Like if it's kind of like that angry family member earlier that I was talking about, like I was actively doing a procedure that just had to happen. It just couldn't really stop. And that's why it kind of, kind of got worse before it got better. But I, th I think a little bit of like, just being nice will go a long way in those scenarios. Sometimes too, I generally don't want extra people in the room while I'm doing a procedure mm -hmm. if I don't have to have them. And so I know not everything is a sterile procedure, but if I have any concern that a family member or extra party will be a problem, I just ask them to leave and I lie to my patients and I say that we have everyone leave during procedures just for safety yeah. and we'll bring you back in when we're done. Literally had that happen a couple shifts ago. It was a trauma patient, family members brought them in and they were sitting in the trauma bay and I was just like, well, I don't, nobody wants to see them, their family members get trauma naked. Like, that's just not a fun experience to watch as a family member. And I was like, we're, okay, we'll just have them step out real quick. And the nurse was fantastic. Like, hey, we're gonna step out while we get the initial stuff done. We'll, we'll keep you updated, I promise. But, yeah. It gives them a chance too, to talk to social work if you're lucky enough to have that resource or a chaplain if you have that resource too. There are plenty of things family members can do while they're waiting on you to do critical resuscitation. And I think just this, not on the exact topic, but we talk about the recordings. I actually will record discharge instructions on patients' phones. To me, it's a new technology that is underutilized, mostly because we all know that our discharge instructions that are in our EMR are usually garbage because they tell them to come back too early or wait too late or nobody, the pediatric fever. reads those. Yeah, or the pediatric <laughs> fever dosing is not correct. So if they want, I offer to actually do an audio recording and say, hey, Miss, Miss Lewis, you were seen today by Dr. Little. I mean, you were seen here for abdominal pain. We did a CAT scan that showed you do not have appendicitis. You don't have a kidney stone. Your labs were normal, including a white blood cell count less than 12. A lipase was not elevated. Kind of walk through, do the MDM for the patient. And then I give them strict reasons to come back. And that has actually gone over really well with patients. I started doing it thinking they wouldn't want me to, but now it's a thing that I offer almost everybody. Um, and to me, it's, it actually is better than the blue paper they're gonna throw away. It makes me nervous. Really interesting. That makes me nervous. It should. Like, I, I think like it's kind of classy. Even... I think it's kind of classy. I do because it gives a different perspective, and I think what's important for all of us is to realize that the culture of our patients are always changing. Our patients this year are totally different than patients ten years ago, which are totally different than patients twenty years ago. So their expectations are different. 
their belief of what they can say and do freely is different. And the uncomfortable reality is, and something I communicate with my residents all the time is that, listen, everybody can go out and fight in the parking lot. Everybody can. If someone curses at you, yes, you can curse back. If someone pushes you, yes, you can push back. There is no one in this room that doesn't have the capability to curse, but we don't. You can, but you don't. We are in a profession where you cannot not take the high road. If you don't take the high road, it will only burn us. And at a bigger view, it burns the practice. Because when you Google that doctor, when you see certain things on TV, when someone says, look, this key is not magnetic, or it sticks to my neck, or whatever, people say, that's a doctor. And they expect that when they come to the ER. So if they see Andy taking the high road, or they see Rachel taking the high road, if they see Tanner taking the high road, they expect the high road response. Yeah. And that's something that will, that will carry us. Like, and it sounds corny, but kindness, integrity, and dignity endure. It won't go a long way, because some people just they don't care about kindness and dignity, and I get that. And that's the emergency room, and that's a drunk patient. They will pee right there in front of you during your questioning. There's <laughs> so much dignity I'm gonna get when you're trying to pee and get the last bit out. I, there's nothing I can do about that. However, even though it's all relatable, we don't curse at the person, just say, look, this is a part of my gig, we'll move forward. And if there's one thing to take away from this entire week, which was communicated, is document the people that are in the room. Yeah. Specifically when it comes to discharging patients. Discuss discharge with everyone in the room, including blah, blah, the attorney if you're in Florida, the uncle, the blah, blah. Or New Jersey, or yeah, there's another Because place. what happens is when, if that chart is reviewed for any reason, everyone at that time agreed and understood of the discharge. Because when people are discharged, it's the person that was in the room that said, I didn't like Chris. Mm -hmm. What do they say? People don't remember what you did for them, but they remember how you made them feel? 100%. Yeah. Yep. Discharge instructions are interesting, not to bounce quite quickly back to that, but there's such a fine line between things that are too vague that gets people to come back maybe unnecessarily and, and that specific. are too specific that you've left out the one key thing or the one thing that does happen that they don't remember or they don't you know, know to come back for. It's such an art. I think no. discharge instructions are one of the things I go over with my residents quite a bit. They're so nuanced. Well, and, and now at least for reimbursement billing coding, Having your independent people in the room listed is actually a good thing yes. for us. Yeah. So, 100%. Thank you. Those for that. level five charts, y'all. Well, thanks for making it all the way to the end of that EM Over Easy episode. Don't forget, we are the official podcast of the American College of Osteopathic Emergency Physicians. Head on over to asuap.org today to learn more about this amazing organization and how you can get involved and maybe attend an upcoming CME event. Also, we are excited for an upcoming live event we'll be having in Chicago, thanks to our good friends over at Vapotherm. It'll be on July 12th at 7 p.m. Central Standard Time at the Goose Island Brewery on Clybourne Avenue. Come on over for food, fun, swag, and amazing conversations with members of our crew and residents and attendants from around Chicago. Until next time, thanks so much. Thank you.